Today we're going to talk a whole lot about the glory of Christ. We get to we get to start a new section in John's Gospel. Today it's traditionally called the high priestly prayer to get our our bearings the first 12 chapters of the book of John that we were in last year was Jesus' ministry. Uh, the last few chapters we've been going through, chapters 14 through 16, have been uh, all about the Last Supper, the, the, the teaching that he's been given to the apostles as his like, last opportunity to train them before they go out, before he's a, a, taken away and killed. So the last... Two chapters, all two chapters we'd be going to together have all taken place in one day, in 24 hours. And now we're at the end of that. He's at, he, last uh, time we were at John, last couple weeks ago, we finished that final discourse that he gives, the farewell discourse, it's called, where he says farewell to his apostles uh, and gives them their last instructions. And then at the very end, now he goes into this, this prayer, which is, it's the longest prayer we have of Jesus, uh, and it's a prayer between Jesus and the Father. And Jesus prays it out loud to give us this view to like let us in on the intimate communication between himself and the Father. And not only that, but how he is now as Christ, really standing between two worlds, still in the world, but already not of it in a certain sense, how he is now operating for us as our high priest. So you want to get a picture of what it looks like for Jesus to be in heaven interceding for us, his people, kind of like this. And he did that on purpose. And so uh, we're going to start that today, just the first five verses. We're going to go through it um, a little bit slower. But can I ask you to please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word as we begin to hear Jesus' prayer to the Father for us, for his people. This is God's inerrant word, John 17, verses 1 through 5. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, so often we find that we are weak, but you are strong, Lord. And I pray, pray, Lord, that you would show us today just how strong you are. We love you, Lord. So we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. You ever had one of those awful bad dreams where something bad's happening, you try to get up and run and you can't run? 
know what I'm talking about? Where you have no power or you don't have any resources or you're just generally in this helpless state and, and, and disaster is looming and you get up to move and you just can't, you can't even move. I used to have those. I used to have them all the time coming out of my previous life. Um, I, was, I had bad nightmares for a long time. And um, uh, as time went on, in a blessed way, meeting Nisa, and in my dreams I would be powerless or I'd be in some awful situation or I would be homeless with nowhere to go or I would be without food and money, stranded somewhere, not being able to do anything um, or I'd be in some awful ultra-violent situation that I couldn't get out of. Um, And then over time, those started to dissipate. And in my dream, I would start to remember, wait, I'm married. (laughs) Nisa, I just got to find Nisa. (laughs) And I'll be okay. Or I'd remember I'd have a home. And I'd I'd remember, I have a house. I just got to get to my house. And then I'd start to remember, I'm a pastor. I have a job. (laughs) That's amazing. And when my first daughter, Hannah, was born, they pretty much all together went away. But I used to have those awful dreams, and then I would wake up, and when you wake up from those dreams, you know, there's that moment, or at least a, a little bit of twilight period where you're not really sure, you know, is, was that a dream, was it real, am I really, am I, where am I, is there really, is there a train still coming at me, can I get up and run, and then you slowly, it sinks into your mind that you're in your bed, and that you're in your home, and that you're safe, and that you've always been safe. And I was reading uh, through this high priestly prayer, meditating on these five verses all, all week. It just, the, this beginning of the prayer really reminded me, especially this first part uh, of that. This prayer that Jesus is praying is something like that. It is in a part, uh, in part, the beginning of the awakening for the apostles as to what salvation is really all about. Jesus is really starting to bring them up to speed. He he prays it out loud to teach them and to teach us uh, that we're not saved by our own power, by our own resources, by our own ability to get up and run, but he's teaching us that we are saved and we are safe and I've always been safe in the power of God. And so Jesus, he begins the prayer by asking God that he would be glorified, but it's not in the way that we would typically think as Westerners when we think of glory, I don't think. And he makes the request or the prayer based on three things, and that's going to be the outline, the roadmap, the thesis, the big idea of the sermon today, and, and, and that's this. Big idea is this, that Jesus prays to be glorified, to bring glory to the Father because he has earned it for us and because he is the divine Son. Let me read that again. Jesus prays to be glorified to one, bring glory to the Father, two, because he's earned it for us, and three, because he is the divine Son. And we'll look at that one part at a time, and I hope to bring out the beauty of what he is saying here. First one, Jesus prays to be glorified, to bring glory to the Father. Look at verses seven, uh, one, 17, verses 1 through 3. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, 
since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Uh, when we were in seminary, it was we, everybody, well, everyone I knew, and me in particular, was always trying to figure out how to speed read, because when you get 12,000 pages of reading for a semester, <laughs> you need to figure out how to read fast, right? And so we would concentrate on how to read super fast so that we were picking up the main ideas and remembering where to go to like, really learn it later, and basically collecting big books of read, books, piles of books that we read that we wanted to read when we got out of school. Um, but when it came to stuff that was super important, we had to develop the idea of slow reading. And really, for theological literature and for stuff that's really dense and for stuff that's really deep, you just you can't speed read it. You have to learn how to read slow so that you have time to let the ideas sink into your head. And so I want... I want everybody to put on your Bible detective hats. And we're going to read real slow through these first three verses. And I want to bring out, and we're going to ask, we're going to ask one question. And the question is, how does Jesus glorify the Father? Because that's his first request. He says, glorify me so that I might glorify you. And the question we're going to ask is, how? How does Jesus glorify the Father? And I think you're going to be surprised. So, this is what it says. Verse 1, it says, it says, glorify me so that the Son, so that the Son may glor- glorify the Son, so that the Son may glorify the Father. And then there's a connector word, since, which means in this context, really, in as much as, or it's the beginning of the reason why or how Jesus is going to glorify the Father. And then it says, you have given him authority over all flesh, and now here's the actual how, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Okay. So, what do we learn from this? We learn that Jesus is going to glorify God by using his authority over all people to give some people eternal life. That's step one. Which people is a good question to ask. And the, the which people are the people whom God has given to him which is a specific select group of people. We could ask right here, how does God give them those people? When has God given him those people? But we're going to save that question for later. Right now, all we need to know is this. Big takeaway from this first step is that somehow God is glorified through Jesus giving eternal life. God is glorified through Jesus giving eternal life. How? Next clue is the definition of eternal life. He says this, the definition of eternal life is to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And when we hear that, when we hear to know you, we hear, we think what? We think to learn and know, to study intellectual knowledge. But that's not what this is saying. Not totally. First, What does he say about eternal life? That eternal life is something that Jesus is giving. In other words, it's a gift. The word really specifically means giving a gift. And so whatever this knowledge is, or to know, 
Jesus, the quality of eternal life is something given to us. It's a gift. It's not learned. It's not something that we think through. It is a knowledge of God and of Jesus that has been given to us. Think about that for a minute. Just that statement alone is kind of earth-shattering when you think about what Jesus is saying. That our knowledge of God, to know what we do know about God, what we know about Jesus is something, not something that we've thought through, not something that we've used our logician skills to reason through, but something that God has given us as a gift. In theological terms, the theological word for that is regeneration. It means that God frees us frees us from uh, from our self-deception, from our self-delusion, and he gives us knowledge of the truth as a gift. But that's not all that he's talking about. There's more to it. The other part of it is that in, in a Hebrew mindset, this thing, this concept of knowing isn't have information like we think of. It's more experiential knowledge to know like you know your wife, like you know your husband, like you know your best friend, that kind of know. In fact, the word is it's a, it's a euphemism for the marital act. Biblically, to know someone biblically means to know them. Married like married people know each other. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and the reason that how that happened was because it talks about it's inferring not head knowledge, it's inferring this deep relational to really know somebody as as, as well as you can, an intimate relationship, a communion with someone that's deeper than just facts. It's experiential knowledge about someone. And, and, and so what that means is that what this is saying, to say that the essence of eternal life is essentially this intimate communion and connection with God, for one thing, means that eternal life isn't primarily just about endless existence. How boring and actually how terrifying does that sound to think about endless existence without any content to it. But what Jesus is saying is that the endlessness is really just the venue for the reality of eternal life, which is ever-deepening communion and relationship with God in his blessedness. And so, putting all it together, that Jesus glorifies God by giving people eternal life, and the definition of that eternal life is intimate communion with the Father, what he's saying is that Jesus brings glory to, the, to God by bringing him children from the dead to worship him as father. In other words, Jesus is collecting in the act of, 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 of redemption. Jesus is coming into the realm of the dead, descending into the realm of the dead and lifting up a big, giant, happy, adopted family of children to come into the heavenly realms and worship God as Father. He's talking about us. That, you know, one of the questions as I was reading this, I was like, okay, so Jesus is glorified before the foundational world. He's going to be asked to be glorified again. Is there any difference between those two things? 
Or is it just Jesus returning to the old glory he had? But what it's saying is there's addition, there's more glory because Jesus is bringing into the relationship between, with him and the Father within the triune relationship of God. He's bringing all of creation into it to worship together and to be together, adding to the glory. That's, that's us. And so Jesus is glorifying God by giving us life and bringing us into his family as children. We had seen this movie, I can't remember the name of it. Some friends gave us this movie a while ago of this family that went to China. They were, it was an upper middle class family and they just felt the call to sell everything and become missionaries to China, particularly to start, uh, I, I, I think they went over there to start this orphanage. And, and, and they got, they sold their home, upper middle class home, like in Orange County somewhere, wealthy family, and they got to China and everything just started to go south. The, one of the tearjerker moments of the video was the wife on camera saying, because they had kids and they brought kids with them, and then they're like, I'm a bad mom. Who would do this to their children? You know, bringing them to this other country where they didn't know anything. But out of all this chaos and disaster, eventually they started to, to bring in disabled children and children that were abandoned and all, and they ended up getting this giant house full of children that were, they adopted and brought into this orphanage. And while they were you know, shooting this movie, they were like, best thing we ever did because we have this house. Why is it so powerful? That imagery is so powerful because it resonates, it radiates with uh, an image of God's salvific action in the world, reaching down into chaos and destruction and bringing together this family of adopted children all worshiping and living together. That's why it's so powerful to us. But it's also powerful because it challenges, in some ways, our ideas of what glory really is. That brings me to the second point. First point is Jesus prays to be glorified, to bring glory to the Father. Second point, Jesus prays to be glorified because he has earned it for us. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What do you think, what comes to your mind when you think of the word glory? Be honest. What do you think? (laughs) You know what, I I ask myself that question, this is embarrassing, this is ridiculous. I imagine like a, a figure, I think it was me, maybe not, hopefully it wasn't me, a figure like standing on a mountain top or like a raised precipice in the wind with spotlights on them, wearing a cape, flowing in the wind, and, and, and like seas of crowds in adoration. It was the first image when I asked myself that question, which betrays like how culturally set we are uh, on, on, our, on our views of what glory really is. We have essentially a Roman sense of glory, that glory is about personal conquest, glory is about victory, glory is about self-fulfillment, glory is about adoration. Um, but in the economy of the kingdom of God, the story is very different. Glory is not about self. It's about humility and it's about service. 
It's about the joy of humility being so empty of self that the power of the Spirit flows through unhindered by human pride, which is essentially the picture of Jesus, the man on earth, the most dependent man that ever walked the face of the earth in complete dependence upon the Father, totally empty of self and selfish motives, brimming with the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And so the glory, here's the thing, the glory that Jesus is asking for here is the cross. (laughs) He's asking for the cross. Uh, Earlier in the book, we talked about a definition of glory, a biblical definition of glory. You might remember, maybe not. And the, the definition was a visible manifestation of majesty through acts of power. And if we ask, how is Jesus acting in power to give life to these people? The answer is through his sacrificial death. Here's another way we run into our Roman ideas of glory. We think, I think, and I think a lot of us think, that when we think about Jesus and glory, we think about the ascension. We think about Jesus in, in heaven. We don't think about the cross, we think about the cross as something that he has to endure. He has something that he has to get through in order to be glorified. But that's not what he's saying. In, in the book of John, the cross itself uh, is presented in every bit as much as an act of power that visibly manifests his majesty as much as the resurrection or the ascension did. Here's the best quote I read all week from all the commentators. He was, I'm going to paraphrase it, but what he said is that because that's true, because the cross itself was an act of power whereby Jesus was manifesting his, his, his glory as much as the resurrection or the ascension was, was that, is this, that what looked to the world to be a display of weakness, Jesus writhing and dying on the cross... We saw silence last night. Uh, wow. There's this scene where these people are put out in the water on crucifixes and, and, and the tide comes up and drowns them. It looks, they are, they are, to the world, they look weak, powerless as the tide rolls over them as they gulp for air and finally die over a four days period. What this is saying about Jesus and the cross is that what looked like absolute weakness in reality was Jesus exercising his authority over all flesh to give life. I wish we could just sit here for 10 minutes and think about that because it's so mind-bending. The cross, the cross was Jesus exercising his authority over all flesh. And so what does this mean? What that means is, of course, that we are saved by works. <laughs> what do I mean by that? I hope you're all wondering what I mean by that. There's a, there's a certain seminary professor who's famous for his first year lectures on salvation theology. He kind of lays out the work of Christ, or lays out uh, a little bit of, salvation theology, and he ends the lectures by saying, and so, of course, ultimately, we are saved by works, and he ends it there waiting for the curious student to see who caught it and would come up and ask him, what do you mean we're saved by works? 
And what he means by that, what he means by that is, of course, that we are saved by the work of Jesus, the completed work of Jesus on the cross for us. And we get all, we very, as Protestants, rightly affirm that we are saved by grace and by grace alone. But we are the, the reason it is possible for us to be saved by grace, which is another word for free gift, is by the work of Jesus that he has completed for us on the cross. And Paul, it calls us to meditate on that fact in, in Philippians 2 as it relates to what glory really is in the economy of heaven, what glory is all about, and Jesus and his death. I'm going, to read, I'm going to read Philippians 2 again. This is a very familiar passage, but let me read through it, and then I'm going to bring out a couple of points. Philippians 2, 3 through 11. Paul says, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name uh, that is above every name. That resonates with a lot of what I'm saying here about humility or about what glory is in the economy of heaven. First, that as we come to grips with what Jesus has done in his, in his incarnation and in his sacrifice for us, Paul is calling us to respond to that in, great, in gratitude. You see that and go, wow, that's crazy what Jesus has done for me. And, and to have that instill in us a deep sense of gratitude. And then that gratitude then becomes the fuel that motivates us to strive after the glory of heaven, which is different. It's not trying to fill the empty vacuum of our hearts with all these desires, good and bad or whatever, but rather it's the opposite of emptying ourselves in humility the way Jesus did by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so really in the economy of heaven, what it's saying is that humility, the emptying of self, is an invitation to glory. It's an invitation to participate in the glory of God. Is that how we think about humility? Is that how we think about it when God brings humility to us or when God rips our prideful things or our idols out of our bloody hands. It is an act of love and mercy, God inviting us through humility into the glory and the economy of heaven. So point two, Jesus prays to be glorified because he has earned it for us. Last point is point three, Jesus prayed to be glorified because he is the divine son. Look at verse five. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You hear, oftentimes, you'll hear critics will say, yes, but Jesus never claimed to be God. 
meaning we can't go anywhere in Scripture where Jesus says, I, Jesus, am God, um, which is true. But it's really not so much about what Jesus calls himself as it is about what he claims to be true about himself. And this is a prime example, a prime example of that. He, there are things that can only be true of God that Jesus says are true of him. And this says much more than just he existed before his birth, before his incarnation. Jesus is saying here that he existed before the creation of time. Time, space, matter, creation. Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 2. Boom, all at the same time. To be created before the world existed means to be created before time existed, which necessarily makes him eternal. Uh, And that is a short list. Eternal beings are a very short list. It's not men. It's not angels. None of us can claim that. No one we know can claim that. No other religious figure in history can claim that. Only God can claim to be absolutely eternal. And only, no creature could look at God and say, God, share your glory with me, which I had with you before the foundation of the world. That's just not something a creature could ever, ever say. And so why is this important? Is it just so that we can go, ooh, ah, Jesus is eternal, Jesus is God, and have our minds tickled? There's practical application to this. There's, there's, there's meaning in this for us in real life, and that is this. First, if Jesus is eternal, then that means that everything true of him is eternally true. What do I mean by that? If Jesus is eternal, that means everything true of him is eternally true which helps us to understand a a certain mystery or helps to explain a mystery in the book of Revelation that calls Jesus the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. How is that possible? I mean, we have the historical record of Jesus being slain, 33 AD. What it means is, is that because Jesus is eternal, that that has always been true And then in the mind of God, in the mind of the triune Godhead, his purposes for salvation were set from eternity, from before creation, which is so hard for us as time-bound creatures to grasp. Basically, it means that God's salvation of us, in a sense, has always been true. All of us individually. And what that means is we can, now, we can now answer that question that I put off from earlier. When? When did God get these people that he gives to Jesus as a gift for Jesus to give eternal life to? And the answer is from before the foundation of the world. This isn't the only place that says this. And here's what that means. And this is, this is mind-bending fact number one. I hope this is another th- one more thing. I hope you'll think about this over the next coming weeks. It's a, it's a quote from Gerhardus Voss, an old theologian. Paul Singbush reminded me of this earlier this week. And, and a quote is this. It says that God's love for you, God's love for you can never end because it never began. Let me say that again. God's love for you 
can never end because it never began. The ramifications, at least one of them, of God knowing us, of God loving us, of God choosing us from eternity past, of Jesus being the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world means that God's love for us never began. It always has been, and therefore, it cannot end, and it will not end for you. And the second, second mind-bending thing of this is that this is the prayer of the divine Son to the Father. Jesus prays to be glorified because he is the divine Son, which means that this prayer is not like our prayers. Our prayers are a mess. Our prayers are unsanctified. Our prayers are based on all kinds of nonsense, right? And so God in his mercy has to filter through our prayers and he grants those according to his wisdom, according to his word, that are prayed in the name of Christ. Uh, And so they get filtered out. Some are answered, some are not. But this is the prayer of the divine son. And let me remind you what he's praying for. He's praying, ultimately, as it applies to us, he's praying that, that God would glorify him through the cross, resurrection, ascension, that he would have authority over all people. And the purpose for that is so that he would give eternal life as a gift to us, to his people, And that would be a means of bringing children into the worship of God, children that God has promised to give to Jesus from before creation. So the question you have to answer yourself is, what are the chances that God answered that prayer? Is there any doubt that the prayer of the divine son offered absolutely in the name of Jesus, offered absolutely in the will of God, is there any chance that that prayer would be denied by the Father? There's no chance. There's no chance. Do you think you have power to intervene into the divine counsel and change that answered prayer by blowing it last week? (laughs) You're thinking too highly of yourself if you think so. No, you cannot. So concluding all this together, this together is why our salvation is based on the character of God and on the work of God and not on our character or on our works. Our salvation is secured by the divine reciprocity of giving within the Trinity. It's like Christmas morning for the Trinity. They're just giving each other gifts. Our salvation is secured by the glory of God who desires to have a big adopted family, even the mess-ups. He's going to clean us up. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. Our salvation is secured by the completed work of the Son on our behalf on the cross. Our salvation is secured by the prayer of the divine Son to the Father. It is secured by the delight of the Father for the Son. It is secured by the character of God who cannot lie, and it is secured by the eternality and the immutability, meaning that God cannot and will not change. Our security is is that, not us. 
not what we do. And so the good news, the good news is to say, do you, do you know God? Do you love God? Do you love him even when you're messing up? Has he revealed himself to you? Do you know that Jesus Christ is the revelation of God and that we only approach God through him? In your innermost being, do you delight in the law of God even when you're totally blowing it? If those things are true about you, it means that you are secure because of who God is and what he has done. Now, I've been uh, writing narrative for Haley and Brian's documentary and uh, that they're doing for their new album release, Confessions, buy it. And uh, I was thinking about how faith is like this realization, like I opened the sermon with today, that it's like waking up from this bad dream which you had no power and you had all these worries, all these concerns, no resources. You just didn't have what it takes to get it done. And you wake up and you move through this twilight where you slowly begin to realize that faith is like this, that you, that you are safe and that you always have been safe in your father's house and that that has been true from before the foundation of the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your table, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember whenever we seek to glorify ourselves with some selfish thing or we seek to comfort ourselves through some empty, vain thing, Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember Jesus and that we would remember how beautiful he is and what he's done for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember how much you love us. We pray that you would help us to remember that the the humility of emptying is really that invitation into experiencing the glory of the world to come, even here and now. And we pray, Lord, that we would be so grateful for these things, that we would walk in your ways, and that we would love you, and that we would be lights in the world, and that you would bring salvation through us. In Jesus' name, amen.